Well, I'm here today with uh, Mike Williams. Mike is a great guy who's been around in the real estate business for uh, quite a while. He's an expert in the loan industry and now uh, as a a really good agent with Keller Williams. Um, I thought I'd bring him on the show just to ask him some questions about Tennessee in general and how it's changed as well as how that change has been propelled by the booming real estate market. Um, so we're going to get started here. Um, Mike, I mean, as someone who's lived here for quite a while, uh, how have you seen Tennessee grow and change? Is it is it still somewhat recognizable? And, and what do you think that says really about gentrification? Well, Kevin, thank you so much for having me on your show. I will tell you that having lived in Nashville for most of my life, which is 50 plus years, I absolutely have seen a major transition in Nashville. Most of them, most of it has to do with just the population growth in the city. And of course, areas throughout the city that at one time were big, beautiful fields are now either shopping malls or, you know, various types of things, lots of building, lots of new construction, just on down the line, which I think is typical for any, any city that is on the grow. And Nashville, to me, reminds me of a lot of where Atlanta was about 30 or 40 years ago. I hope we don't become an Atlanta. No offense to Atlanta, but that is a major city. And Nashville, I'm not sure, is ready for that. Uh, the infrastructure is not ready for that. As far as, you know, some of the gentrification you're referring to, uh, yeah, you do see a little bit of that throughout the city. I know that West Nashville has pretty much stayed as it has been most of my life. Uh, especially in the, the Hillwood area, uh, for those people that are familiar with the West Nashville Hillwood, the Bellmead uh, has stayed pretty much the same because everything over here is zoned so that you basically have one home per acre. Now you go into Green Hills, and Green Hills has a lot of the what they call HPRs, high property regimes that are popping up all over creation where they're putting two and three homes on a, on a piece of land uh, that has been rezoned. You do see... Uh, most of those properties staying not so much heading towards middle class unless middle class is six to eight hundred thousand dollars. So it's uh, that's the price range you see there. Um, it's been quite an interesting process just to watch Nashville. I did have a chance to step away from it for a few years while I was living out west uh, and to come back in and visit family and see how much this city is growing and was was growing at that time, which has been about 15 years ago. Um, Boy, we were growing then, but Nashville has just exploded now. So a lot going on here in Nashville, no doubt about it. Well, it's kind of funny, actually. I uh, I have a friend who lives over in, in Georgia, just, just an hour outside of Atlanta, and I was going down to see him, but, uh, you know, I ended up meeting the next day, so I left kind of late at night, and I was going to get, um, you know, limited sleep that day. But I was going through Atlanta. It must have been close to midnight and guess what there was traffic i mean i i could not believe my eyes there's no traffic getting there and no traffic as soon as i left atlanta but as soon as i got atlanta i didn't even leave, I, I mean i didn't even leave the highway but there was traffic oh yeah oh yeah i mean i it it, it is crazy and nashville has become a lot of that uh you're seeing a lot of the local people that have been here for years and years that are trying to move out of city to get away from some of course like i said west west nashville with houses still being one house per acre basically in most of the west nashville area this has become a very popular area for builders to come in and buy these homes which are selling for anywhere from four to six hundred thousand and put a million and a half to two million dollar homes here uh, because the land will handle it but it's 
the the thing that you've got in West Nashville that you're not experiencing downtown is you don't have the traffic issues per se yet. But I will tell you that they're coming into the West Nashville surrounding areas and are putting up a lot of apartment complexes and that type of thing, which just makes the pot, the uh, uh, traffic much more dense on the outer perimeter of the area. But as far as just the area within Westmead and Hillwood and the uh, Belmead area, it's staying pretty much the same. So thank God we're saving some of that and uh, not becoming overwhelmed with the population growth. It's great for the city. It's exciting. It's an exciting place to live right now uh, just because we've got so much going on with the you know, the hockey team and the football team and the new soccer team that's come in. I don't doubt that somewhere down the road we'll have a professional basketball team. We have a minor league baseball team. You just turn around. The, of course, the music has always been the big thing for Nashville, and that's just exploding as well. So it's a very exciting place to be, but it's a very busy place. Yeah, I mean, that's, and that's understandable. I mean, anything that's as, as popular and has so many draws, I mean, it just brings on a lot of people, and, and you're right. It's the infrastructure can't handle it. That's going to put a strain uh, on any community. And I suppose regarding uh, economics in this sense, uh, last quarter or so, uh, there was a scare uh, regarding the economy and, and a potential recession. You know, in, in August of, of 2019, there was uh, multiple news reports about an inverted yield curve and that um, we were heading towards the – I guess the the long-awaited uh, market recession, and I, I only say that because it's been what uh, uh, 12 years since the last one. Um, and have you seen anything in the market to to correlate that, or was this all just kind of a big uh, war of the worlds scare? Um, and and how how tied is the market, um, the real estate market, tied to to the stock market? Well, I think what you've heard and what you've seen are two different things. And, of course, I think whenever everything is going well, there's always those people out there that believe that, you know, the world's coming to an end and that it's going to happen this year. And then that, that story will translate into next year, and it just keeps going on and on. As far as the growth in Nashville, as we've already discussed, basically there's about, it's my understanding, about 80 people per week that are moving to this city. So we've got tremendous growth, which opens up an opportunity for the builders and for new construction and so on and so forth. Um, so, and then what you find is basically houses are sitting on the market on average about 42 days, which is a pretty quick turn for most properties. And, you know, of course the value of homes are continuing to climb. So boy, I'll tell you, if we've got a recession coming, somebody better tell Nashville because it's not, it's not being indicated in this city. And yes, you have seen, you see the stock market move around and it does. I think people look at that and it's, again, that is a nervous twitch uh, type of market that they're always, uh, you know, there's a lot of ebb and flow and what's going on within values there. But I don't think at this point we're seeing anything happen uh, in a negative way to the real estate market in comparison to the stock market. I think stock market's going to do what it's going to do, but I do believe that, uh, you know, we don't have the mortgage-backed security issues like we did back in the 2008, 2007, when it started creating all kinds of um, a mortgage meltdown uh, within the country. Right now, we're not having that. And so there seems to be a really strong indicator that the real estate market in Nashville is here for a while. I mean that, and that's good news for everybody. Um, would the influx of uh, 
jobs in places like Murfreesboro and, and uh, Laverne and some of the surrounding areas from, from Amazon. I know there was talk about uh, 5,000 extra jobs. Would that power us through any national crisis um, just because real estate and the, and the market itself is, is so local? Well, yeah, I think it would. I mean, you know, bottom line, you've got so much growth going on here that the, the real estate market is not suffering. I don't see it at all, and that's why you've got so many real people trying to get into the real estate business uh, is because there is an opportunity here for continued growth. And with, you know, like you said, the Amazons coming in and some of the other companies that have come in, most of those are mid-level management and on up that, you know, bring six-figure income earners into this city, which means, you know, they can – handle the prices of real estate in this city growing as it has over the past two or three years. I mean, there's been a substantial increase in values of homes and we have people that come in and buy a home. In fact, I have one client that we just dealt with that got about a $35,000 profit after paying out fees, uh, real estate fees and closing costs and so on. They only owned the home for a year. So when you got that kind of market going on, uh, and you've got that kind of growth happening in the city, I don't think you're going to see a problem here in Nashville for a while. I don't think we relate to what's going on maybe throughout the country as much uh, because of our growth. Yeah, and that makes, and that makes perfect sense. But, um, you know, kind of changing, changing gears here um, because social media has just become such a part of uh, what we do, I think, in our daily lives and, and in business respectively. Uh, <clears throat> You know, I am uh, a man of faith, and and I uh, am not a, afraid of that. But being as experienced as you are uh, in the mortgage industry and in business in general, um, do you think that that faith or brazenly associating with either a particular denomination or uh, religion uh, can help a business, hurt a business, or or do you think that uh, there can actually be something productive? Uh, from that? Well, I think the best way for me to answer that is that I believe I had a, have a set of core values being a Christian man myself, and nothing in society is going to change those core values. I know that uh, the way I, per, I go about my business is that I respect all people, and I respect all people's rights to think what they choose to think, and I don't really care to push my values on anybody else. I care to live my values and be who I am, and that means that everybody gets respect, everybody gets treated fairly and well, and, you know, that if some people disagree with my Christian values, they have that right to believe that, but I'm not going to change my values for them. Does it affect me? No, I think, I, I think it does affect me as having the values because bottom line is to treat people with respect and love. And when you do that, I think that's what most people are seeking in life. Even though they may not agree with the Christian walk, uh, they still want to be respected. They still want to be loved. And maybe the way I go about living life is that I love all people. And I, uh, of course, there. And when I say that, I say that people that I love. When I say I love all people, I do love all people. But I know there's some people I can't afford to spend a lot of time with because of their degradation of human life and values. And so as a Christian man, I think if anything, it improves my opportunity to work with people because I'm going to respect them. And hopefully they will respect me. And if they don't, I wish them well. And 
you know, we probably don't do a lot of business or spend a lot of time together, but that's, that's okay too. They're still allowed their feelings. I just want to walk the walk that I was put here to walk and to uh, love people. Mm-hmm. And, and they sound a little through I don't know. I, but uh, the way I look at that is that uh, by respecting others, um, I seem to have a lot of good people in my life, and I hope I attract a lot of good people uh, by being who I am. And I think that's a reasonable uh, position, and I think that's also a, a um, you know, a position that I think a lot of people of all um, faiths and beliefs can can at least agree with, um, in the sense that that we are tolerant or we strive for uh, tolerance in society. And I think, um, you know, that that if people put that first, there there is a lot of things behind that. But with they, uh, with that being said, do you think that too much of the gospel in business uh, could actually become too distorted? Um, the gospel itself could become too distorted by business interests, and do you think that could negatively impact the evangelical community or um, impact the way that that non-believers see uh, us people of, of faith? Well, I hope when the people that, that are non-believers see people of faith, I hope they see people that, that love them in spite of, or of, of their beliefs that, you know, uh, the, you know, the, the scripture that says, love thy neighbor as thyself, uh, doesn't, what would you say, doesn't um, choose who those, na- I mean, you have your neighbors, and you don't choose which one you're going to love and which one you don't. It's just like rain falls on a whole area. It doesn't fall on just one or two people. You have that opportunity as a Christian person to love all people. And for those that are different from you, you have the opportunity to come to understand them, just as they have that opportunity to understand you. But, you know, it always comes back to core value. Um, what are you rooted in? What are your beliefs rooted in? And your, your beliefs are rooted in doing right by others, doing to others as you would have them do unto you, treat people with respect. And so do I think it's going to distort business? Yeah, there's always going to be people that are uh, totally against what we believe. That's okay. That's okay. Just as long as they allow and respect me the right to do that and that they work with me from an honest and respectful standpoint, we're going to get along just fine and we can do business together. And hopefully who I am influences them and lets them see Christ through me. That's my hope and prayer. You know, I, part of my prayers in life are to, uh, you know, Lord, help me get out of your way so you can work through me. And uh, hopefully they will see Christ through me in the way that I work with them as a businessman, as well as an individual, as well as a friend. And on that same note, in terms of um, interaction and, and really networking, you know, there are, are thousands of books that have been written on, uh, business and networking and successful ways to grow a business. But again, drawing from, from your experience in business, has there been something that you feel is overlooked um, when people start really in any industry? Is there something that you feel of all the, the books that you've read that, that is not accentuated enough that has helped you? You know, it's funny. when um, In thinking about that particular question, the one thing that I think that everybody could benefit from is to learn from those that have gone before you. Um, and one of my, part of my life right now is that I hired as a 
real estate agent, I hired a coach to walk me through the process. He happens to be a gentleman that was number one in his state for about 12 years uh, as the number one realtor, and he has knowledge that is uh, exceptional because of all that he has done the process. So I've kind of shortened the learning curve when I got into this business by hiring him to coach me through my business. I think that in any industry you go into, you find a mentor, somebody that has walked the walk that can uh, get you from point A to point B quicker with fewer cul-de-sacs and detours and giving you an opportunity to succeed at a more rapid rate than the average bear out there. I think we miss out on the opportunity of learning from the experts that have walked our path. So that would be if there was one piece of information I could give anybody as far as how do you get to be successful in any industry, the one thing you can do is hire a coach that can teach you the ropes and save you an awful lot of time and frustration by trying to reinvent the wheel. And that, um, you know, is there a specific criteria that you that you look for in a coach or that you would uh, recommend that people look for in a coach? Because, you know, there are just so many out there. And, um, you know, I'm sure you see them on, on Facebook and Twitter and uh, LinkedIn ads and YouTube ads and all this stuff. Is there is there something that can help filter out um, really the, the contenders and the pretenders? Yeah, I absolutely think so, because in the process of hiring my coach when I first did this is I started thinking about what kind of coach do I want, you know, and uh, the, and the several of the things that were key to me is that they had actually been in the real estate market and had worked the market. Number two is that they had been successful in this market uh, and knew not just this market, but any market. They had been successful as a real estate agent. And then number three is do they have a coach themselves? Are they still being coached to be the best that they can be? Because I think that's what it's always about. When you come into an industry, if you're inspired to be the best you can be in whatever it is, whether it's fitness levels, whether it's as a teacher, whether it is as a real estate agent or a mortgage person or what, whatever field you have chosen to go into, is to hire people that have that, that area of expertise and that they're still learning. They're not just stuck in a time and age, but they are still learning from what's going on in the current market. For instance, in real estate, everything has really jumped into the social media, and that's become a way of marketing yourself and a way of uh, developing lead generation. And so, you know, 20, 30 years ago, it was Rolodex cards and uh, networking groups and that type of thing instead of what we have today. So you have to be, you know, at the top of the industry and on the cutting edge of, edge of what's going on in the market. And of course, that's the kind of coach you want is a guy that's still continuing to learn. So, sorry about that. Um, so anyway, that would be, if, if you're going to look at coaches, look at one that's walked the walk. They're doing what you, they have done what you want to do. Number two is, are they still being coached? Number three for me would be availability. My coach, if I'm working on a project that is unique and different from something I've done, I call him and 99% of the time he's done that. And so he can walk me through step by step on how to be the most effective uh, as a realtor for that particular client. And so because of, of, 
your interaction, obviously, on the not only the um, realtor side as important as it is, but also uh, in drawing from your your broader experience and um, in your discussions with your your coach. Um, did you do you still feel as though um, either from two thousand and eight or beforehand? Do you think that there's still a animosity towards banks and um, I mean, if there is, 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 do you think there's a reason for that? Is it, is it warranted? Um, what's, what's kind of your general uh, impression uh, on that? Well, I, I can tell you this, that the, the back when I had a mortgage company, the one thing for us is that the mortgage companies uh, were required to disclose what they called a yield spread premium, which is just a means of, and, and most people, I, I'm, I'm going to say most people, I think most people were not aware of this, but basically if the interest rate was at 5% and if uh, the mortgage person raised that to five and an eighth, and it probably was as good or better than what the banks were doing, on that eighth of percent, the mortgage person received an additional yield spread, meaning an additional commission that was expressed on what they called yield spread premium. Well, the mortgage companies were required to disclose that on the uh, HUD settlement statement when they went to closing. The banks were not. And that was all because the banks had more money to be able to lobby to get that type of stuff uh, not disclosed. Is it, is, it, is it legal? Absolutely. Was there anything wrong with what they were doing? No, not really. They were just presenting a, 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 an interest rate that the buyer was accepting, it was competitive, and they liked working with whomever that bank was. Whereas a mortgage person, we had to disclose all of that yield spread premium. The lenders did not, the, the, the banks. So there was a little bit of animosity there around that. If that's what you're referring to, that's what, uh, you know, the difference between a mortgage company and a bank at that point was that we had some things we had to disclose that banks didn't. Um, is it still there today as far as the animosity? No, I don't think so. There was all, such a huge transition when the 2008 thing hit and you had so many wholesale lenders that were going out and the mortgage-backed securities were a nightmare. And, of course, you had people that were upside down in their homes and you had short sales happening and all that. It was such chaos going on back during that time that people were bailing. Uh, which is exactly what I did. I shut the doors back in 2007, actually, because we saw it coming. But uh, now that everything has settled down and we're basically 10, 12 years out from that window of time, you're starting to see the lendings, lending uh, institutions become a little bit more relaxed in some of their requirements. I will say that... Uh, you know, the requirements as far as credit scores are higher than they were back then. We had credit scores that were at 580, getting a 97% loan to an FHA loan with 3% seller uh, contribution Man. towards closing and up to 6% towards uh, closing cost. So uh, that 3% towards down payment and 6% towards closing. So you're, you're beginning to see some of that again. You're not seeing as much of the what they call non-conforming, which is less than perfect credit loans. They're not as prevalent as they were back then. Um, so people are not ending up upside down, per se, because of what happened or, or like what happened back in the 
2007, 2008, 2009 era. So I hope I addressed the question on that. Well, actually, it was well, pretty unique. Um, I had no idea that there was a, a push and a tug between the, the mortgage companies uh, and the banks. I was actually um, a lot more enlightening, um, you know, than than for me. Um, I did not know that that existed. I suppose it makes sense. Um, and would you say that that can carry over, or do you think that the the general public still has a animosity towards the banks? And as a as a mortgage uh, provider, did you feel um, did you feel as that was somewhat unwarranted and directed at, at at you? You mean from the from the consumer? Yes, sir. From the from the okay. Consumer. Well, from the consumer, of course, anybody that's losing their home's not happy. Uh, and anybody that has stepped into interest rates, which some of those back in that not that so-called non-conforming or less than perfect credit side, uh, they had incredible opportunity to buy a house back then. But the problem was that most of them, uh, the debt ratio was so high, which means out of every $100, in some instance, up to $60 could be applied towards um, all of their fixed debt, what you would find on your credit reports, your installment loans as well as your revolving and then as well as your um, uh, mortgage payments. It did not include what they had to pay in taxes. It did not include their daily living expenses or gas or you name it. Wasn't any of that included in that $60 out of every hundred. So you had people going upside down because the requirements in order to get a loan were so much so lax that if you were, we, we had what we called a fog of mirror loan. You did not have to produce income. You did not have to produce assets. You did not have to show employment. All you had to do is have a certain credit score in order to qualify and could get up to a 95% loan. And uh, in some instances did not even have to validate where that money was coming from. You could be borrowing it and not have to validate it. Um, so, I mean, just crazy stuff that was going on back then that it's not happening in the industry now, thank God. But um, yeah, there were people that were not happy. Uh, you know, they were having to do short sales in order to get out of the houses. They were upside down in their homes. Just lots of issues that were created by having too much flexibility. Uh, and of course, all these guys that had, had bought into these mortgage-backed securities were losing their shorts back during that window of time. So there was a lot of pain going on around that. And everybody was probably pointing their fingers at everybody else. Bottom line, we were all responsible for the decisions we made. So uh, you can blame anybody you want to, but the ultimate uh, person responsible for that is yourself. And uh, so we aren't seeing quite that level of uh, flexibility now, and that's a good thing. And you won't see any debt ratios that allow up to $60 out of every 100 to be applied towards your fixed debt. Uh, we're still down around 45 uh, for most of those. So animosity, yeah, it was there. Pain, a lot of it. A lot of unhappy people, a lot of confusion because, you know, lenders were going out of business or, you know, the big ones, the countrywides were selling out to another bank uh, and were just running. Hopefully we will never see that type of thing again. Yeah, we. I mean, we can help. And, and as you said, it, it has gone kind of lax, but I think I would hope that the lasting impact of, of 2008, if anything, I think the most positive one could be that um, not not necessarily as a regulation, but as a, a general rule of thumb that some of those um, 
debt you know allocations come down the um just the impact of, of that market crash was was felt everywhere as you said you know you had companies that had put a lot of money into subprime mortgages which to be fair you know they're called subprime for a reason yeah yeah those are those people with less than perfect credit so they were already challenged number one that way and then number two to allow that that collective group of people and i'm not judging i'm just saying that you know to for people that are not really in control of their money very well and they're allowed to have a 60% debt ratio, meaning $60 out of every 100 applied back towards fixed debt, um, already puts them in a bad spot because they've got to deal with taxes and then they've got to deal with living expenses and, you know, like I said, the gas and the utilities and you name it. Um, that's where the problem started is that they just had too much money thrown into fixed debt that there was nowhere to go unless they increased their income. So. Challenging place, challenging time. I think we learned a lot about through that and that there is a limitation on how much money you can have uh, allocated towards the purchase of a home and towards your monthly, you know, principal interest taxes and insurance plus your other fixed debts, again, being your revolving and your installment uh, loans that there's only so much you can have allocated that direction before you start getting yourself into real trouble because then you have nowhere to go unless your income goes up. Yeah, and that's um, that's certainly something that we should keep an eye on. But um, as for us here, um, that uh, that is it in terms of questions. Uh, so, Mike, it's uh, happy to have you on the show. Is there anything, um, any last word that uh, that you want to say before we get out of here? No, Kevin. I just really appreciate the opportunity to to spend some time with you and to hopefully share information that will help your listeners. And uh, you know, if obviously, if I can ever do anything for people as a realtor, I would be more than glad to, or if you have any questions, obviously run those back through Kevin, and uh, uh, I'm sure we can, we can see how we can help you.